Amen. Judges chapter two is where we're at. This is part three in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges happened around 3,500 years ago. And it's a sad portion of history where we study what happened to the men and women who were living amongst the Canaanites in the promised land. And it was a season of time where they had no king. Listen, no good leadership. And so instead, they did what was right in their own eyes. They looked around, read the newspaper, checked their own hearts, found the cultural norms, and decided to do whatever made the most sense to them based on their neighbors, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the websites and the flashlights and the Snow Whites, and they were all there. And it was miserable. Listen, here's the good news. We're going to study their story. It doesn't have to be your story. And I'm going to do my best to not take their story and superimpose it on our story today. But we do want to make application from God's word. The Bible says of God's word that it's a lamp and a light for our path. That it shows us where to go. That if we hide his word in our hearts, we won't sin against him. The Bible also says that everything that happened in the Old Testament happened for our learning, for our hope, for our admonition, for our warning, so we don't have to repeat those same sad stories. And you'll remember we ended chapter one on what we would call partial obedience or partial disobedience, where God led the children of Israel and gave them their inheritance. He said, Zebulun, you're here. Asher, you're here. Naphtali, you're here. Issachar, you're here. And they all moved in, and there was things to do, but they didn't quite do a great job. Some did better than others. But we saw last week that eight tribes just didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't go all in. Why? Why don't we go all in? What's your reason? What's your excuse? What gets in the way from you going all the way in? Remember the three excuses we tell ourselves? Well, at least I'm not as bad as I could be. At least I'm not as bad as I used to be. At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. And we have all these reasons why we sell out. Prefontaine, that great U of O runner, he said something before he died tragically in his car wreck. He was a very gifted runner. And he said something I consider often about physical fitness, but also spiritual calling. He said to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. What gift has God given you? What mantle? What call? When we open up God's word and we receive his word, he tells us exactly who he wants us to be as men and women, image bearers, light bearers, missionaries, sent ones, and yet I compromise you. Well, why do we do this? Usually we find ourselves falling into the cycle that we see repeated in the book of Judges over and over. We start with elation when we're connected with the Lord, maybe after summer camp or an Easter baptism or a great church service. We're just connected to the Lord. Oh, happy day. Isn't that a great day when you're connected to the Lord? Woo-hoo! Inevitably, slowly but surely, somehow, some way though, we're distracted. Maybe it's by normal things, but maybe it's by sinful things. And we go from being connected to the Lord and elated by the Lord to be distracted from the Lord by the cares of this world and the silly, sinful ways. And it's very normal and natural and hopefully it doesn't last long for you. But as we get distracted from the Lord, then the third level is that we become not just distracted from the Lord, but we become enslaved in our sin so often. And now we're going places we wish we would have never gone, doing things we should have never been doing. And then the fourth, and this is a good day, we're not just enslaved by our sin. Listen, we're broken by our sin. Ah, no, what happened? What happened? We look around, there's a train wreck behind us and carnage in our rearview mirror. And how did I get here? Has anybody ever just been devastated by the decisions you've made? Me in the front row? Okay, that's cool, that's cool. And then the fifth step of this cycle that can happen in one short day is we move from brokenness to being restored by the Lord. Amen. He restores us. 
I've chosen to title this study through the book of Judges, Stories of Failures and Forgiveness. It's just story after story, failure, listen, and forgiveness. Failure and forgiveness. Jesus actually said in Luke 21, he said, it's impossible in this world that you should be without offense. It's going to happen. You're going to offend people. They're going to offend you. It's going to happen. And so he gave us the way to navigate through that. He said, make sure and forgive 70 times 7. Rebuke people, repent, change, and repeat over and over. We find ourselves, and I don't know where you're at in that cycle today. Maybe you're just stoked on the Lord. You're fired up. Let's go. Or maybe there's some subtle distractions. They're not sinful necessarily, but you're just kind of like, yeah, I think... I think I might be lukewarm. I don't know what's going on. Or maybe you're on that third step where we don't want to go, where you're enslaved by sin. There's a secret thing going on. You're in too deep. You're going to go to step four, which is brokenness. Maybe that'll happen today. At the end of the service, I'm going to invite people who are broken and need prayer, need restoration and ministry and deliverance just to come forward and get that. And then step five, forgiveness. Time to move forward. But I ask you the question, what makes us make this compromise and make this mistake we see here, in your, if your Bible's open, in Judges chapter 1, it says that Judah, verse 19, drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowlands. Stop right there, eyes up here. Judah did great on the mountaintop. Things were going awesome, but as soon as they got down to the valley low, they became discouraged when they saw the enemy's chariots of iron. This is so like me. I find myself victorious in certain things. Oh, this is so good. Such a mountaintop experience this morning. And then I get discouraged by the reality around me. The project up on the hill or the neighbors or the situation in my own life. As a matter of fact, last week I became very discouraged for about 72 hours. I don't know what it was. Did you guys, anybody else get discouraged last week at all? Just like, man, I'm just discouraged. I think it could have been the fact the sun came out and then went away. <laughs> and I was like, what? I don't know what it was. But I just, I know, why am I so discouraged? They were so discouraged that they could not drive out the enemy. They decided, it's just too tough. It's too much. And it came back to haunt them forever. Or maybe it was like Manasseh, the next tribe. Benjamin did it. Manasseh did it. Matter of fact, let me just read this to you. It says, Manasseh, verse 27, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. It goes on to say, because they were determined. That is, these bad guys. They were determined to stay there. How many of you guys are wrestling with a sin right now in your life where it just feels like this never goes away? It's been decades Decades, and I just keep messing with it. It's determined. It's part of my nature. Okay, let's say it is part of your nature. What are you going to do about it? You're just going to give in? You're going to roll over? You're going to acquiesce? Or are you going to rise up? And are you going to continue to fight valiantly and courageously for eternity's sake? Manasseh didn't do it. Matter of fact, we learned this last week. Manasseh, this is in Bet Shean. This is one of the Roman countries, cities, should I say, right next to Jerusalem that was godless and it was all kinds of carnal and Jesus wouldn't have gone there. But did you know that before that, right after this, where it says Manasseh didn't do what they were supposed to do in Bet Shean, 400 years later, King Saul, listen, King Saul, you guys know King Saul, he's the very first king of Israel. King Saul would be brutally massacred there at Bet Shean by the bad guys. It's actually kind of a gross story. I'm gonna read it to you. You guys ready for this? This is in 2 Samuel 31. It says, so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head, stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaros, their sexual god, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shean. Stop right there, eyes up here. Now let's say you're Manasseh. And you're supposed to take out the bad guys. And you decide, well, I'm just going to do a little bit. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm better than I used to be, that's for sure. Amen. And what if somebody came up to you and said, did you know in 400 years, your kids are going to have their heads cut off? 
They're going to be nailed to these walls because of your compromise. It's been said before that what parents do in moderation, often their kids will do in excess. That's for good or bad. You can moderately kind of compromise, and you have control. You're an adult, and your kids are seeing and witnessing this, and then they're going to go out oftentimes in the next generation and go bonkers. I pray that's true for our family, that they see what we've done in the things of God, and they go out and change the world in Jesus' name. Manasseh didn't do it. Would that change your battle plan moving forward if you knew for a fact that your compromises were going to lead to great pain for the ensuing and coming generations of your family? I believe it would. I believe it would. And may the Lord encourage us, whether it's the chariots of iron and not knowing that God is for you. By the way, and the world is crazy. It's stacked against us right now, isn't it? It's just nuts. Man, we're hogtied in a lot of ways, governmentally. We can't do a lot of stuff. We're all messed up. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to get discouraged? Remember when Elisha and, or Elijah and Gehazi were there and camped out, and they were surrounded by the Syrian army? And Gehazi went out there to get the news times that morning, and he looked up. He's like, oh! And he ran back. He said, Master, we're surrounded! And Elijah was in there reading his coffee. He's like, are you for real? You didn't get the newspaper? Go back out and get the paper. He's like, Lord... Would you open up Gehazi's eyes to see what's really going on? And Gehazi went back out, and all the chariots were still there. The bad guys were still there. But all of a sudden, Gehazi's eyes opened up, and he saw chariots of fire lining the mountainside. And Elijah, Elijah told Gehazi, he said, there are more with us than there are for them. That's just the way it is all the time. Let's not forget that no matter what's going on. We see the news. We see all the chariots. We see all the problems and inflation and all the chaos and the conspiracies and the wars and rumors of wars. Let's not sell out on the mission that God's given to us. We also see in verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Maybe Gezer was a retirement community and they just were easy on them. I don't know. Get it? Gezer. Anyways, you get it at lunch. It'll make sense. Verse 30, nor did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, which would be southern Lebanon. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come into the valley. Stop right there, eyes up here. A lot of reasons. Judah, Manasseh, the sin was determined to stay there. Let me just make it real simple for you and for me, though. The main reason why we don't simply do what God has asked us to do is because we have chosen not to believe him at his word, and we just find ourselves walking in disobedience. His word is so clear. He tells us what to do. He tells us what he's doing. He tells us who he is. And yet you and me and our little committee in our mind, we come up with so many reasons not to simply believe his word simply. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, to trust and obey. And yet we read things that go against our culture and that go against our nature. Have you read anything in the Bible that has offended you? Okay, if it hasn't offended you, you're reading it wrong. It's supposed to offend you because you're wrong by nature. We're born in sin by nature and then by choice we're offensive and yet we find ourselves forming co coalitions in this world saying, hey, let's change the rules. Let's change the law. We know what we're doing. We're smarter than God. God says, whoa, whoa. I know a lot of things. I created all things, and I love you. This is the way of peace. This is the way of life. Oh, Pastor Luke, that sounds so archaic and so old-fashioned and so restrictive and constricted. It is. Because if we just do whatever we want to do. Have you guys ever just done whatever you wanted to do? Okay, we call it Halloween in Ashland, okay? 
adults dress up, they put masks on and go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They go crazy. I remember I actually read an article and one guy was being interviewed by a paper. He said, Halloween's the best because you can put a mask on and do whatever you want to do. I thought, dude, that's the heart of man right there. It's the depraved heart of man. And yet God says to you and God says to me, no, I want you to know that I love you and I've created ways for you to live. As a matter of fact, I was thinking this through last night because the children of Israel, they had a great start and then they drifted far from their foundation. And I don't want to superimpose this upon America, but it kind of sounds like America a lot. We had a great start. By and large, the founding fathers believed in God. They had morals. They believed in absolute truth. They believed in the Bible. They were imperfect men, for sure. But they had their due north figured out. They knew what was true. And they came up with this thing called the Declaration of Independence, which allows each and every one of us to have some unalienable rights and freedoms. We can literally do whatever we want to do. All the police are like, well, not whatever, you know. But we, can, we have freedoms and rights, and yet here's the deal. John Adams, back in the day, one of the founding fathers, he said, you know what? The Declaration of Independence, that is the freedom to do whatever you want to do, only works with a nation that has morals and integrity and God and Scripture. It only works for people who know that there is a God, that you're not him. That We don't just get to make our own rules up. And I want to be the person. I want to be a man. I want to be a husband. I want to be a father. I want to be a pastor and a friend who says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, take my life and use it. But I've come up short. You've come up short. We've all made mistakes. We've all compromised. And I'm just going to help you to understand the simple reason why we compromise is because we just don't believe God at his word. This happens on micro levels and macro levels. The micro levels are my problem. I got a micro problem all day long. I'm making decisions. Well, I just, you know, you know, have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Little, just kind of, you know, micro little decisions. And I get to the end of the day and I've been microwaved by my decisions, you know. You can look at the macro decisions of our nation, our culture, and all the things. We've removed God from government, God from schools, God from police, God from uh, educate, God from everything. No more God. What, do, what are we doing? You know where that's going to lead, don't you? Oh, it's imposing to have God. Are you? God is good. This is so crazy. And we're seeing now the fruit of it. It's just slowly coming out. It's slowly coming out. And the Lord says, hey, careful. Now, again, I, I don't want to sound rigid and I don't want you to tune me out. See, God knows what's real. He knows what's true and he knows what's good. If we took the time to pull every single person here this morning that's been drunk, that's done drugs, that's been abusive, that's been violent, that's been carnal, that's been rebellious, that's gotten a divorce, that's gone through with an abortion, that's committed a crime, committed a sin. We pulled every single person and said, hey, did that hurt? Yeah, it did. Cost me something. Cost me more than I thought it was gonna cost. Took me further than I thought it was gonna take me. Kept me longer than I was prepared for. It for sure hurt me. See, God is not mad at you, you know that? He is though mad about you. And he looks at the ways of this world. He says, guys, careful, careful. Don't compromise. Oh, you're such a mean God. No, he's not. He ever lives to love you and care for you. And I've committed so many sins and so many crimes in my life. And if you were to sit down and say, hey, Pastor Luke, tell me why you're so stressed out. Tell me why you've suffered so much in your life. Tell me why it's been so hard for you. And, all and it would be me, myself, and I. All the stupid things I've done. And I... I need to get to verse 1 of chapter 2, otherwise we're going to run out of time. <laughs> Let's read it. You guys ready for some good news? It's right here. It says, then, 
the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum. I just want to stop right there and tune you in. When did the angel of the Lord come up from Gilgal to Bochum? After they'd blown it, partial obedience, compromise. And the angel of the Lord, did you know the angel of the Lord, when it says that in the Old Testament, it's referring to Jesus Christ, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before the baby of Bethlehem was born. Because Jesus has always been, he's part of the Trinity, he wasn't created, he's always been. And so in the Old Testament, from time to time, he would be sent as the angel of the Lord. Wrap your mind around this. They're in one of the darkest times of their life, the time of the judges. And they're all messed up. And so Jesus comes from Gilgal, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, the place of meeting. And he goes to Bacham. You know why he went to Bacham? Because that's where they botched it. It's probably not even said Bacham. I just had to do that for the joke, you know. It's probably Bohem or, Bo, you know, whatever. But Bacham literally means weeping. It's the place of crying. A bunch of weepers. They're crying and weeping. So what's Jesus do? He meets them. He goes right there, and if you've been on that position where you've received God's grace and mercy because you've blown it, you'll, you'll never know God's love and mercy and grace toward you the same way that you'll know it in the days of deep darkness when he ministers to you, like the woman caught in adultery, like the woman at the well, like Peter when he had denied Jesus and deserted him and tried to go back to fishing. And Jesus said, Pete, what are you doing? Let's go. The angel of the Lord, and he comes with great mercy, and I hope you're here today. No matter what season you are in that cycle, no matter where you're at in your rebellious nature, we all have it. No matter what you're doing, may you know that the Lord also is here today to meet with you. And this is what Jesus says to them. Look at verse 1. I'm still reading. He says, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Stop right there, eyes up here. These three reminders of Jesus' promise to them and what he's offered to them. Guys, I led you out of Egypt. Now, if you're new to the church, Egypt, that doesn't mean literal Egypt. Some of you are like, I've never been to Egypt. You know, Egypt is a picture of sin. It's when we are walking carnal, reprobate, and rebellious against the Lord. And he delivered us. He saved you. And I hope you've experienced that. I hope you never forget that. I'll never forget the Egypt that Jesus delivered me from. And I was a bad dude before I gave my life to Jesus, before Jesus took me right where I was. And he says, hey, Luke, I want you to be encouraged moving forward. Do you remember when I delivered you? Yeah, I do. Do you remember when I led you through the wilderness? I do. Do you remember when I made my promises for you? that I'll never break them. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Do you remember that? Yeah, Lord, I do. I do. And the Lord, in order to convict them, reminds them of his great grace and his great love. And he says in verse 2, he also gave them instruction. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Verse 2, he reminds them, not only did I do all this for you, but I asked you just two things. Don't make treaties with these people. Okay? Tear down their altars. Stand for something. Because this is very hard. I can't speak to that generation. I wasn't there. But I know for a fact right now to stand as a Christian with morals, to have a Judeo-Christian mindset, there's one God, there is a God, he's real, heaven is real, hell is real, the Bible is real. It's a very unpopular position right now to stand for these things. You can be accused of all kinds of things you're not. We've been asked to love all people unconditionally, sacrificially, and we do. And yet when you stand for something, you get accused for all kinds of other things. But I need to encourage you not to go out with your and bullhorns, you know, and telling people to turn or burn and repent, you know, for the return of Jesus is near. That's, you don't need to do that. 
But what you do need to do is not make pacts and treaties with this world and the carnality and the depravity and the rebellion. And you need to stand for the things of God. It's going to cost you something. And the world needs to see Christians that are standing in confidence and hope, humility and love. Because everyone's going crazy. Everyone's making stuff up. And they're all realizing this was a mistake. This was a mistake. This confuser of genders. This confusion of all these things. This confusion of all. This is a mistake. What do we do now? And when Christians are standing there meek and humble and open and gracious and forgiving. And he says, guys, I just asked you not to team up with these bad guys and to tear down their altars. But you wouldn't do it. Guys, look at verse 2. He says, but you have not done. You have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Let's just think about these two questions. These two challenges. When he says, you've not obeyed my voice, I go back to the very first question that I asked you guys. Why don't we go all in? What stops us? Is it the chariots, the discouragement? Is it the, the, the power of sin? Or is it something more simple that we simply don't obey his voice? We just didn't listen. Because the heart of every issue is truly an issue of your heart. It's not a military problem. It's not a cultural problem. It's not a resource problem. It's not our country. That's, it's my heart. And really, at the end of the day, what I want Jesus to do is have full dominion over my body, mind, and spirit. But I want to hear your voice in your word, and I want to obey it. Every time I've disobeyed, every time I've rebelled, every time I've compromised, I've not been confused. Well, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. <laughs> no, I knew what I was doing. I just wasn't listening to his voice. And Jesus is bringing this up now, saying, you know what the real problem is? Our hearts are disconnected. Jesus had that one rebuke to the church in Revelation where he said, hey, you're doing great, but I do have one concern. Your heart is far from me. Return to your first love. Come back. Let's hang out. Let's hang out. Guard your heart for out of it flow all of the issues of life. If Jesus doesn't have your heart, really there's nothing that he does have. He's saying this with, with concern and with endearment and with love. And then he asks this question, why have you done this? Isn't that the worst question in the world? Have you ever just been busted, just red-handed, and the person that you've busted or been caught by just looks at you and says, what are you doing? You're like, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh, I have so many stories and no time to tell them. Sorry. I have been so busted. What are you doing? And yet this is the same question that God asked Adam and Eve, what are you doing? And they begin to wrestle with their own heart. This is the same question that God asked Saul as he was persecuting the church. What are you doing? And he began to wrestle with his heart. This is the same question that Jesus asked Peter. What are you doing? When he asked him these questions to get that exposed. And I would say, if God's asking you that question right now, what are you doing? What's going on in your life? What are you trying to accomplish from this relationship? What are you really trying to accomplish? And he sits down with you. And you say, "Ah, man, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. What are you trying to accomplish with with this endeavor? What are you trying to accomplish with your life? Where are you going right now? What are you really doing? Remember the prodigal son? who left his dad, and his dad gave him the goods, and he knew it was going to be painful. And eventually, that prodigal son spent all of his wealth and found himself compromising, becoming a pig farmer, and then he became a pig food eater, and he found himself with pig food all over his face one day. And the Bible says he came to himself, and he essentially asked this question, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it was one of the greatest days of his life. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to my dad's house. Maybe he'll hire me as a servant. I bet he will. He's a very good man. He won't treat me as a son, that's for sure, but he will hire me back. And he came to himself. When he got back, what did his dad do? He treated him as a son, covered him with his robe, covered his stench, covered his barrenness, put the signet ring on him, the authority, and then fed him the fatted calf. And yet God wants to ask you a question right now. What are you doing with your life? 
this life will soon pass and only things done for Christ will last. And he encourages us to come near to him. Look at verse three. He says, therefore, I also said, he's reminding them of the promises in the contract. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus had already told them, if you follow me, I'll fight for you. But if you stop following me, I'm not gonna fight for you. And instead, the people around you, they're gonna be thorns in your flesh. I'm not gonna do for you what you need done if you don't do for me what I've asked you to do. It's that simple. And so often, listen, in our Christianity, it's the same. Jesus has already saved us. By faith, we're now born again, spirit-filled, delivered. And every once in a while, we look around and say, why is my life so hard? What's going on? And the Lord says, I'm not gonna get this thorn out of your flesh. You did this to yourself. Sometimes we just expect a good night's sleep to make us holy Christians. I'm just gonna go to bed, you know. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I want you to fight against this sin, against this corruption in your heart. You've all been on a walk before and you go through the bushes and you get a thorn in your sock and you're walking, whoa, what do you do? Man, that sucks. You take your boot off, you take your sock off and you get that thorn out of there. You don't just keep enduring. And in your life when it starts to suck and it starts to poke you and get your attention, it's designed to get your attention so that way you can adjust and get nearer to the Lord and continue the mission he sent you out to accomplish. He says there's going to be thorns in your side and a snare to you. Verse 4, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the name of that place Bochum because they botched it so bad and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, this is a throwback story, the children of Israel went each to their own inheritance to possess the land. Now, let me just say something quickly because we know the rest of the story. If you didn't know the rest of the story, they get busted and they immediately start to weep. <laughs> you know, they're weeping. And then their voices rise up. They're making all kinds of promises and declarations. I'm so sorry. I promise I'll never, you know, it's all good. Then they start making sacrifices. Oh, sacrifice, you know. You would think this is all good, right? Unfortunately, we know the rest of the story. They're going to go right back to whoring themselves out to other gods. That's a direct quote from the book of Judges. They're just going to go right back to the way it was. They're all busted and bummed out because they got the bad news. Oh, no. Here's the deal. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that there are, is worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when you get busted for your sin. You're in the front page of the paper again. You're in handcuffs. Woo-woo. You see the sirens behind you. You got caught online. Something came out. Oh, you're, you're, you're embarrassed and you're busted and it's, not, and it's not fun and you're crying and you're sad about it. But it's all talk. It's all just voices. It's all just emotions. It's not surf. It's not uh, sh- deep. It's actually shallow, and it's all just for show. You might not even think that in the moment, but it's really not going to move you into a real change. Then the Bible says there's something that's not worldly sorrow, which is when you're just sad because you got caught, but godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is when you're convicted and when you're sad, not because you got caught, but because this is who you are, and you're convicted, and you want change and you're committed to the process of change. Listen, true repentance and true conviction will be evidenced in true change moving forward. Not just some show, not just some words, not just some empty promises. This is a warning to all of us that when we're busted, it's because God wants us to move forward. He doesn't want us just to get a hall pass and get a light sentence. We want change, and this is where God asks you and me to let the Spirit of God come into our lives, change our marriages, change our singleness, change the vices that are going on in your life, and it's going to take some cooperation with you and Jesus. It's going to take you rising up early and going to bed late. 
deleting some things, breaking up relationships, moving out of houses. I've had to abstain. I've had to move out. I've had to distance myself from all sorts of things throughout my life in order that I wouldn't find myself getting sucked back into the silly little things that get me. And he reminds him, I've delivered you, so get back after it. Now, we know this is not going to lead to real change, but real repentance is seen and evidenced through action and change. Let's keep reading. By the way, it says they sacrificed. I would say this. We don't sacrifice anymore, but we do take communion every Sunday, which reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus. There is a chance that this will become religious and routine for some, but it's not intended to be vain or rote. It's intended for you to remember that Jesus died for you that you can continue on. You can leave your sin here today, move forward and become a different man or a different woman and actually change your habits, actually change your character. The Lord can renew and restore your soul. This is what he asks from us. Guys, check this out. We're gonna have another flashback. Chapters one and two are a setup for the rest of the story of the book of Judges. So now we're going historically back to when Joshua was alive. Let's learn from that. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. I like how he's called the servant of the Lord. That is a high uh, compliment to be called that. He was known as serving the Lord. He was a great leader, and all the men who served under him were great leaders. They led people to the Lord. They led valiantly, but now he's dead. Verse 9, it says, And they buried him within the border of the, his inheritance at timnath in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, they're dead, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. What happened? Joshua's gone. All the elders are gone. And only one generation, everyone forgot. How did we get here? How did we get to the promised land? What about Egypt? What about the wilderness? I was thinking about this over the last 36 hours. We've been up on the hill kind of all week long. We were clearing some trees and making firewood and just kind of loving on the land. And, and somebody came out to help, and they said, this is so cool, Pastor Luke, because I've been a part of a lot of churches, but I've never been a part of a church that is at the very beginning of the building project. And I thought about how many churches, every single church had a beginning of the building project. Every single church, a 30-year-old church, a 40-year-old church, a 50-year-old church. But how many of those churches right now, even in Newport or throughout the world, have forgotten to pass on to the generation coming up behind it what God has done for them? And there's an obligation and a responsibility on moms and dads to make sure that the next generation knows the wonderful works of God and what he's done, listen, and what he wants to do. This is why it's so important to pray for South Beach Christian School. As we're raising up the next generation, telling them about God and what he's done. As we have youth groups and young life camps and middle school camps and high school camps and outreaches. And we do these things in our community. So important and imperative that we don't forget what God has done. As a matter of fact, even just seeing other churches, older churches, older than ours, it scares me. How, how, how can we avoid that? In 50 years, if God should tarry in his return, what's this church going to be like? In 50 years, I'll be... 70. No. No. I'll be dead. What's the next generation going to think? Are they going to know? This is what we're learning from this story. Joshua, great job. He's a servant of the Lord. And I got to say this to you who are in the same position. Maybe you have some Joshua's in your heritage. My great-great-grandfather was a horseback circuit church planner. 
in North Dakota, in Montana. He rode around in a robe with a big old collar, some fatty facial hair, planting churches. My grandma has his Bible, and I have their Bible in my office. Their faith's not going to help me. I'm not going to get to heaven and say, where's my grandpa? Did you get me a spot at the table? You know? I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for my kids that are here. Noah, Nemo, and Acacia. But their dad's faith isn't going to be enough for them. They need their own faith. And I need to make sure that I'm giving them opportunities to grow in their faith. And if you have a grandma who's spirit-filled, led by God, used by God, that's awesome for her. It doesn't mean anything for you. You have to have your own faith. You have to have your own call, your own mission. The generation was passed. The next generation did not know the work which God had done for Israel. Look at verse 11. Now we're going to see what happens. The cycle continues. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. What happened? A generation passes, and all of a sudden Israel joins forces with the common gods of the Canaanite culture. It says, they forsook the Lord of the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger and they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and the Ashtaroth. Stop right there, eyes up here. The Baals and the Ashtaroth, these two different God groups, generic in nature but nonetheless encompassing the God of the Baals, these are the same God of the Baals, the one that the prophets of Baal that Elijah killed at Mount Carmel. We've studied that before. We were just there in Israel a couple months, weeks ago. But the God of the Baals would be the God of the intellect, the God of the unknown, specifically the God of weather and resources and agriculture, specifically the God of science and all things kind of intellectual and kind of normal. If you had any problems 3,000 years ago, you would go sacrifice things to the God of the Baals, hoping that you would then get your life in order. And this is what the Canaanites did. So the children of Israel are like, yeah, we're having a drought. We're having a problem. We don't know the future. Let's go do what the rest of the world is doing and serve this junk drawer kind of God idea of science and resources and weather and unknowns. Now the Ashtaroths were different. The Ashtaroths were the sensual gods, the sexual gods, the promiscuous gods, the reproduction gods, the god of fertility and childbearing and child killing, and they would sacrifice their gods, their children, just like we do in our culture with abortion and all these other ideas. Let's just control all our stuff. And I say that to say this, 3,500 years ago, these guys were crazy worshiping false gods, but did you know that those false gods were empowered by the same demons that are empowering those same ideas and those same systems and deceptions in our culture today? As our generation right now, we're like, well, let's just not ask God what he thinks. Let's go ahead and ask the intellects. And let's go ahead and ask the resources. And let's go ahead and do things horizontally instead of this way. And we bow down to the ways of the bales and that kind of junk drawer idea. Or we find ourselves whoring ourselves out. So the, you're going to see it. I'm, I keep saying that. It's very offensive. But it's biblical. As we keep giving ourselves over to the ways of the world sexually and with sensuality and with reproduction and all these ideas. Saying, let's, just, let's do it our way horizontally. And if you've seen this battle, I, I see it all the time. I'm on the front lines. In my own family, with our culture, teaching the word, standing for truth. We're getting weirder and darker, more carnal and more rebellious. And if you don't think it's a spiritual battle, okay, you've been deceived. If you don't think this sexuality confusion and this chaos we're living in is run and inspired by demons, you've been deceived. And if you don't think this intellectual desertion of the things of God, doing it our way in universities and cultures and cities and leadership is not demonic, 
then you've also been deceived. We see this years and years ago, the same lies, different generation. They forsook the Lord, verse 13, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Not a good day when God's mad. And so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of the enemies all around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Stop right there, eyes up here. I do need to have a timeout and make a distinction here. Because what we're seeing in this text and in this story is because of their rebellion, because of their cooperation with the worldly ways, they're not going to suffer because of that. He's going to despoil them, and they're no longer going to be able to stand against their enemies. Their defenses won't work. To be despoiled is the opposite of getting spoiled from victory. When you get spoiled from victory, you're enlarged, you're enriched, you're blessed. And to be despoiled means that you're losing everything, and that you're falling down. Now, this is a direct result of their sin. Here's my timeout. Sometimes in our lives, we find ourselves going through challenges and tests. Sometimes we do lose things. Sometimes we do find ourselves under attack. Listen, sometimes it's not because of your sin or direct sin, but it's because of the brokenness of our world. I just need to make sure and say that time out. Sometimes you'll be tested. You'll go through things and you'll wonder, did I blow it? Have I made a mistake? Is God mad at me? And he's like, no, no, no. This is not that. The last time, totally your fault. This time is different, you know. This time you're just being tested. For me, though, I'll have to ask myself, Lord, I feel like everything's falling apart. I feel like my heart is distant from you. I feel like I'm finding myself despoiled. And then I have to ask myself, Lord, is my life pleasing to you right now? Very simple question. And he'll tell you. See, there are two things that you need to be aware of. Condemnation and conviction. When you're feeling condemned because of your actions, because of your situation, because of your life, when you're feeling condemned, that's not from the Lord. That's from the devil who condemns us day and night. But when you are feeling convicted, it's because the Lord wants better for you. And he convicts your soul and he says, hey, I just need you to give up those things. And yeah, you've you've just kind of gone lackadaisical and lukewarm in this area. I just want you to come back. And he will convict you. Be careful. Ask the Lord for discernment, not to fall prey to condemnation, but to let conviction and the kindness of God lead us to repentance. Well, these guys are suffering specifically based on their rebellion and sin. Verse 15, and wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. Again, none of this was unlawful. God said, hey, I'll fight for you if you live for me. If you go in rebellion against me, it's gonna be against you. This is just the way it is. And they decided to test the Lord. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who had plundered them. Stop right there, as up here, we see now the cycle of sin leading back to brokenness and God's deliverance and his forgiveness. God will always forgive you, he'll always forgive me. Do you know that? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, as soon as you cry out to the Lord, Lord, I'm in too deep. Lord, I've messed things up. Lord, I've lost my way. Lord, I'm in trouble. He's right there. And he will raise up a deliverer for you named Jesus Christ every single day time every single time do not give it one more hour one more night one more week cry out to the lord for deliverance well these guys got delivered but they would not listen to them verse 17 says yet they would not listen to their judges but they played the harlot or they went whoring if you have the king james after other gods and they bowed down to them and they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the lord they did not do so verse 18 and when the lord raised up judges for them 
The Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord is moved to pity by their groaning. Stop right there. I want to talk about these judges just briefly. In the book of Judges, there'll be 13 in totality, 12 men, one woman. And God raises up these judges. Some are good judges. Some fail in their acquisition to be leaders. One of them is named Samson. You guys remember Samson? He's one of the judges. He was a he man with a she weakness. God had given him extra strength and he led valiantly at times, but he also had all kinds of problems in his heart and his mind and his eyes would wander and we learn from his life. And yet the men and women that God raised up, it says right here that while they were leading, they were powerful. And I just need to point this out. God chooses to raise up men and women throughout the generations of mankind to be leaders amongst other people. And it's God's power in those men and women. It's God's anointing that he gifts to them. And when God gifts a man or a woman, all we have to do is surrender to him and let him use us for his glory and for others' good. And he will indeed do that. But all the glory must go to the Lord up in heaven. And we see here that these guys and this gal, uh, were Deborah, were raised up to be used by God. And the Lord gave them power. It also says, though, in verse 18, the middle, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Don't you just love God's mercy? I need you to hear this. God is so merciful. He sees when you've blown it and when you're now suffering, and he will avail to your needs, and he will minister to you. It reminds me of the book of Jonah. You guys remember the book of Jonah? And God told Jonah, hey, go to the Ninevites and tell them I'm going to judge the city in 40 days unless they repent. And Jonah said, I don't want to go. And God says, well, if you don't go, I'm going to give you swimming lessons, you know. And, and he got a whale tour, you know. We all go look at the whales. Well, he got a whale of a tour. He was in the whale. And eventually he said, okay, I'll go. And he went and he preached to the Ninevites. And God blessed the Ninevites and they all got saved. They repented. And remember at the end of the story, Jonah's so mad about it. He's like, I knew you were going to forgive these guys. That's why I didn't want to preach to them. And Jonah had a hard heart, but God had a heart of love and forgiveness I just think it's so fun to, to believe that. How many of you guys, when you're praying for forgiveness for yourself, you ask for mercy? Anybody ask for mercy? And when you're praying for the people around you that have sinned, you're praying for justice? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Lord, don't let them off too easy. Make sure they learn a lesson. Now, it's for me in my case, you know. I'd like to have some grace and mercy. I'm very sorry for taking your time. God is gracious. I hope you know this. He's not just gracious to you and to me, and I want that mercy. He's gracious to everybody. What if we as his ambassadors believe that in the governments and in the, the places and the people that are super confused right now, the Ninevites? It would be so much more fun to be an ambassador of Jesus if we knew and believed that Jesus loves every single person, wants to give them grace and mercy. He's asked us to be lovers. He's the judge. He'll do what is right. He only has that authority to do so. Look at verse 19. We're almost done, guys. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not cease from their own doings nor their own stubborn way. This was a 400-year cycle of sadness before God would raise up for them Saul, which would lead to King David, which ultimately, listen, would lead to Jesus Christ. All of these are dispensations which show us our need for a savior. Their stubborn ways got them in trouble. Verse 20, then the anger of the Lord was hot because Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately. 
nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Some really important insights in these last two verses. God says, okay, every time I raise up a judge, he or she leads, they're empowered, it's obvious, they die, and it's even worse. And this repeats itself over and over until we get to the last couple chapters, which are absolutely brutal. And so God says to this people, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to just drive everything out. I'm not going to just fight for you as much as you want me to, as much as I have in the past. But instead, I'm going to let the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the websites and the flashlights and the Snow Whites, I'm going I'm to let all these groups be with you. Why? Why would you do this? To test you. You're being tested right now. Sometimes we wonder, we look at our country and wonder where we lost our way. Can we get back? Is it a pre next president? Is it the last president? Is it a new president? All these things. Or say, hey, it's always going to be messed up. It's always going to be difficult. Because God wants to give you and me an opportunity every single day to say yes to the Lord, no to our flesh, no to the sinful ways around us, and to let our light shine bright before the people around us every single day. Why is it so hard? What's going on? You're being tested. You're being tested right now, and the Lord says, I will give you the strength you need. I'll give you the power that you're asking for. I'll give you the light. All I want from you to do is to keep your eyes on me, keep your heart open to me. Would that change anything for you if you just knew you were being tested? When's the test going to pass? <gasps> as soon as you die. That changes everything for me. That excites me. Okay. Oh, okay. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's not going to be down here. This earth's amazing. It's crazy. God's so good. And he says, oh, yeah, there's even a better one coming next. I'm going to redo it. Get ready. Don't get too connected down here. Don't get too distracted by the things down here. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have Bryce come up. He's going to lead us in worship, and we're going to respond in singing. But I'm also going to give you an opportunity to say, yes, Lord. Listen, I'm going to give you an opportunity to say, yes, Lord. Test me. See that my heart is yours. See that my life is yours. Most of us in here would say, hey, Lord, uh, can you uh, stop testing me? <laughs> Maybe I can avoid the next test. What if you said, okay, okay. I've shared this story maybe a hundred times. But I was reading my Bible early in the morning, years and years ago, about four in the morning, and I was overwhelmed, perplexed, discouraged. And I was reading Psalm 11. You can read it later. And as I was reading Psalm 11, it just so simply says, it says, the eyelids of the Lord test the sons of men. That God sits in heaven and he sees, he understands, he knows and then it reiterates, he tests the sons of men. And it dawned on me, I said, wait, Lord, are you testing me? The heaviness right now in the ministry you've called me to, the difficulty, the burden, I feel like I'm going to die. It's so heavy. Just been married, just entered into the ministry. So many pressures, so many things to learn. I just sense the Lord say, I'm just testing you. Oh. Being the competitive guy I am, I said, oh. Well, if it's a test, well, I'm going to handle it differently. I can get through this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, would you be pleased? You're not mad at me. You're not frustrated with me. 
but I can do this. And I just simply trusted God at His Word, and maybe that's what God wants you to do right now. What are His promises for you? Are they confusing? Are they clear? They're pretty clear. The confusing part is your heart, my heart, our sin, our questions, our rebellion. Yet He simply asks us to trust Him. What about the chariots? What about the stuff? What about this issue I've been fighting for so long? Lord, what do I do? And he says, follow me. Keep your eyes on me. Trust in me. Find your joy in me. The heart of your issue right now is an issue of your heart. It's not the other people. It's not the other things. It truly isn't. It is not. God said, I'm going to leave these people amongst you to test you. That's what's going to happen. And if you feel like you are being tested and maybe there's a need for greater strength, there's a need for greater provision, you just need to be pumped up again. Lord, I'll be tested if that's what we're doing. Lord, I need to be strengthened. I need to be cleansed. I need to be, Lord, equipped. What I'm going to do is we're going to sing a song and I give you an opportunity to come to the altar and to simply say, yes, Lord, test me, but equip me. Lord, fill me and heal me for my marriage, for my ministry. Lord, for my parenting. For the call on my life, Lord, I do it. I surrender all. I'm all in, Jesus, but I need you. And I want you to come to the front of the altar and say, yes, Lord, break me. Take me as I am. Let's go all in. I don't want to be lukewarm. Don't want to be distracted. Don't want to be hard-hearted. Don't want to be compromised. What you're saying is I need help, Jesus. And what I'm going to ask you all to do right now, would you all stand with me? We're going to sing a song. And if you feel compelled to come to the altar right now and receive help in your time of need, would you come to the altar right now? Make your way out the aisles, down the center aisles, to the stage right now by way of response saying, yes, Lord, I need you in my life. Lord, would you take over? Would you heal me? I feel like I'm being tested. Maybe you're in a situation right now where you are being tested and you realize that you've also messed everything up. You jacked everything up, you blew it, you compromised, you did something silly, and you need restoration. Come to the altar right now and let the Lord heal you. Cry out to Him. And I'm going to ask you, if you're a prayer person, maybe you come up and just pray for some people. Lay hands on them, minister to them. Lord, we thank you for what you've done, what you're going to do. We love you. Forgive us of our sins, all, all of us, every single one of us. Forgive us. Help us to be more about your business, Lord, more into you, walking in the promised land, Lord, taking those things that you've asked us, Lord, to inhabit, not be in compromise, Lord, in our sin. We just love you so much, Lord. Bless us right now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we're singing, I want you guys to come forward and to confess to the Lord that you need him, that you want that prayer, that you want that feeling, that you want to be strengthened for the test. Let's sing to the Lord right now.